This is Positive Parenting. Parenting expertise and advice from best-selling parenting author and national newspaper columnist, Mr. Dad, Armin Brott. Hello there. Welcome to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott, the founder of MrDad.com. Veterans, whether they served in combat or not, often leave the service suffering from a number of conditions, including post-traumatic stress disability, traumatic brain injury, and or military sexual trauma. These and other conditions can be the direct result of something that happened during military service, or they could be something that happened that have nothing to do with the service at all. But the bottom line of it is they need some kind of help. A growing body of research has been finding that one of the best ways to empower veterans to return to civilian life with dignity and independence is to connect them with dogs. Those dogs can be trained to help veterans with mobility issues retrieve objects that they need to get like shoes or car keys or to help veterans who are suffering from post-traumatic stress and are waking up in the middle of the night with nightmares to reassure them and help them to get back to sleep or veterans who have been shut-ins who have been afraid to go out and, and be in public to give them the confidence and companionship that they need to actually get out there and meet the world. In this part of today's show, we're going to be talking with an organization that provides service dogs to veterans to help them better cope with exactly the conditions that I mentioned just a minute ago. They train the dogs and they train the veterans, and the results have been absolutely amazing. Support for today's show comes from Navy Federal Credit Union, which is proud to serve the Armed Forces, veterans, and their families. And if you're a member of the Armed Forces or the Department of Defense, they'd be proud to serve you too. Federally insured by NCUA. We'll start talking about canines for warriors when Positive Parenting continues right after this. McGruff the Crime Dog here. Let's hear from an identity thief. Identities are easy to catch online. I send people an official-looking email pretending to be their bank or credit card company and ask them to confirm their personal information. Books them every time. Safeguard your personal information on the phone, online, and especially at home because half of identity theft occurs by someone you think you know. Keep your identity to yourself and take a bite out of crime. Learn more from the National Crime Prevention Council at ncpc.org. A message from this station, the U.S. Department of Justice, Crime Prevention Coalition of America, and the National Crime Prevention Council. Welcome back to Positive and Brought, and my guest for this part of today's show is Brett Simon, who's the co-founder and president of Canines for Warriors, and their website is k9sforwarriors.org. Brett, thanks for joining us. Not a problem. Thanks for having me on. So why don't you give us a little bit of an overview of the organization, and then we'll we'll get into some of the specifics. Okay. Um, Canines for Warriors was started by my mom, Sherry Duval, and myself. Um, when I returned back from Iraq uh, after a second time in 2010 um, with our goal to provide service dogs to veterans using um, shelter and rescue dogs, uh, at the time we were very small. We had three employees, and we just wanted to help. And um, keeping the cost down, finding good shelter and rescue dogs uh, seemed the best way for us to go, and that's how we got our start. Okay. Why did you get the idea of providing dogs for veterans? Is this was the goal to do like therapy dogs, or is there something specific or special about dogs and and service members? Yes. Yeah, so um, the science with uh, post traumatic stress uh, showed that with a um, service animal that the veterans uh, were feeling better, 
um, overall better health. So we were looking at the um, reports that had come out through there. And prior to coming back home, I was diagnosed with post-traumatic stress. Um, and my years prior to canines, I was in law enforcement. So I had a background um, working dogs and training them. So we thought it was a good fit for us to uh, put these things together and, again, help our soldiers with uh, PTSD. Um, and now we've moved into helping for traumatic brain injuries, military sexual trauma, and limited mobility. Um, so our dogs are trained service dogs instead of um, emotional support animals. Okay. How do you articulate what it is that a dog is doing for somebody who's got PTSD? Um, they're what we call uh, nightmare interruptions. A dog can wake somebody up um, using pressure by laying on them or also licking them so they're bringing them out of a nightmare and back to uh, their normal reality of their home um, and they're not in danger. The mobility part to um, you know, assist some of our men and women uh, when they're in full battle gear, they're carrying 80 to 85 pounds a day. Um, their knees and their backs are, are getting down there, so our dogs will help them out of a chair or assist off the ground. Um, and some of our dogs retrieve items for our mobility patients, clients, that uh, they drop their keys, the dog can bring it back to them. And then there's always uh, the part that the dog is with them 24-7, no matter where they go, um, to provide them the emotional uh, or the anxiety um, of PTSD being out, to where they can notify their handlers, um, usually by licking or pressure, leaning into them, letting them know that their anxiety is getting too high and that they need to take a look at what's going on. So the dog and the handler are really in tune. So it sounds like there's a lot of group work in a way. I mean, working with the dog and the handler, they, they've got to get to know each other. Correct. We do um, a 21-day living facility uh, program with the guys and girls that come. Prior to that, um, my trainers are getting the dogs ready anywhere six to eight months to two years prior to the veteran coming. Um, and then as we um, get through to each class, we run 12 veterans every month. Um, we match the dogs to the handlers um, with their abilities. Uh, so somebody that has some mobility issues uh, may get a dog that's a little more methodical and um, slow. And then we have guys that are, you know, if they're still running five, ten miles a day, um, you know, MMA gyms and things like that, and they'll get a dog that's going to be a little more active. And go so then they spend the 21 days getting to know each other on campus with us. Um, every day we take them out to different locations and teach them how to use that service animal. And but you're saying that there there's a lot of training that goes on before the veteran. So are you training a dog for a specific veteran with specific issues, or do they all go through a certain type of of general training? They all go through a certain type of um, our general training. So. Um, most of our tasks are not unique to um, individual clients. We train um, very few that will be just individuals for um, a warrior to go through. So um, our basic obedience, our tasks of nightmare interruption, um, you know, helping the warrior get through uh, mobility issues or school or work, um, they're all pretty much doing the same thing. The only specialty that we do is the retrieves for certain people. Um, that, you know, can't do it, so the dog can open a drawer for them or bring them their shoes, their keys, stuff like that. And we will spend one-on-one -on -one time um, after the class teaching them a little bit more about that because that takes us a while to um, do the specific task training. But I'd say 90% of our um, 
animals are being trained uh, in a similar manner for each different, uh, for every veteran, that there's not a lot of difference in between them. Hmm. And you said there was a 21-day live-in component to this, so the, the veterans are coming someplace? or the do- how, how, do, how is that? Who's living where? Yeah, they're come, um, our veterans are coming to Ponte Vedra Beach, Florida, um, and we take care of most of the time uh, if we can to travel. We are a nonprofit, so, you know, sometimes that gets a little crazy for us, but we have good partners that will assist the veterans in getting to us. Um, and once they're on campus, then they, they stay with us for 21 days. And like I said, each day they learn um, something a little different. We take them out into the public, to grocery stores, um, to the mall, um, down to the zoo, St. Augustine, and put them in all the different environments that they may be um, come across when they graduate our program so that they understand uh, how the dog's going to act in certain environments and um, what they need to do as far as the handler to help their dog because it is a team. There are times the handlers are going to have to help their dogs get through some hot days or uh, big crowds as well. So they, they do work together as a team, and that's what we teach them during those 21 days. Are there particular breeds that are better for this type of thing? I mean, if you're if you're getting rescue dogs, you probably have somewhat limited options rather than if you're going through a breeder looking for a, a purebred kind of a dog. What, what what's what's your ideal dog? So um, as far as breed, we um, look for the, we go to shelters and we're looking for a certain age and size more than um, the breed, which is we want the dog to be two years or younger and weigh over uh, 50 to 55 pounds. That way the handlers have longevity. Um, they're not getting an older, an older dog maybe out of the shelter that's four or five years old, and they have a shorter time with them. Um, but, you know, we see a lot of lab mixes. Uh, we do see a lot of pit bull mixes, German shepherds. I ha- haven't found one that, you know, is specific that would be better than the other. Um, I like to say our dogs are as individual as our veterans that come through since they are not purpose-bred dogs. Um, you know, and it really gives the dog and the handler a chance to, to get to know each other because they both have um, personalities. Why the weight limit or the weight minimum? You said there's 50, 55 pounds. That's so a we, pretty big dog. We do that for the mobility part. Um, you know, some of our guys and girls um, are pretty big, and the dog needs to be sturdy enough to be able to support them for that mobility task. Um you know, anything I feel under that, then you have a 200-pound guy trying to get up with a 30-pound dog, it may not help. You know, the dogs can end up being injured. So we like to see a dog that's a little heavier so that it can um, help the veteran with that mobility task training that we do. Yeah, that makes some sense, I guess. I mean, especially if you're going to try try to move somebody, you can't really have a chihuahua doing too much. Although, if somebody's limited by their <laughs> their living situation and they're only allowed to have a small dog or they only have a studio apartment or something like that, would would you train a, a smaller dog for somebody who who doesn't need the physical movement part? Uh, we don't do that. Um, we have partners though that we've gone uh, we're eight, going on eight years now um, in business. Um, as canines for warriors, so we create good partnerships with local um, other veteran service organizations that will do any breed of dog, any era of veteran. Um, our program is only post 9/11 right now um, until we can grow and put more leashes and more hands. Um, our mission is going to remain post 9/11, but we have great partners that if somebody has that need, we can get them there, and um, they're also great organizations that. 
um, have helped us out and we help them out. So it's a good partnership to have the people we have working next to us when we can accommodate a veteran, they can. Talking with Brett Simon, who's the co-founder and president of Canines for Warriors, and you can take a look at their website, which is K9S for warriors.org and you can find out about the organization we're going to take a quick break when we come back we will keep talking to brett and uh, get a little bit more insight into the kind of training that they're doing and differences between different types of, of service dogs i'm armand Brant, and you're listening to positive parenting Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Broad. If you're just joining us, talking with Brett Simon, who's the co-founder and president of caninesforwarriors.org and also is in charge of all of their training over there. And I'm, I'm curious, we talked a little bit about the, the mobility issues and had the dogs helping with those kinds of things and then with PTSD, with, with waking them up for from nightmares and, and things like that or calming them in stressful situations. You also mentioned sexual trauma. I'm, curious about how a dog helps someone who has experienced sexual trauma. Well, the dog's going to provide um, the support that the handler needs, number one, to get back out in public. You know, isolation um, is the number one thing. Usually that happens after a, a post-traumatic incident like that. So having a um, service animal to be able to go with them everywhere. Um, our dogs, no service dogs there because to protect but they should be there with their handler, and that provides that support for them. And the other part of the military sexual trauma is that it does create PTSD, so the nightmares and the reoccurring um, theme in their head, the, you know, the visions they see. So the dog is still working um, in generalities, you want to say, that it all is PTSD. So, um, you know, they're going to suffer the same type of psychological trouble um, that a non-sexual victim would, but the dog is still responding to those same cues and uh, waking them up out of the nightmares and providing them the support and they need to be able to get out into public. Mm -hmm. You mentioned uh, that the dogs, I think you said that they they were not emotional service dogs, but they were something else. And I'm, I'm curious about that because you see dogs with wearing different kinds of vests that say I'm a working dog or I'm an emotional service dog or there are certain types of dogs that are allowed on planes or in restaurants that aren't otherwise. Can you talk about the difference between the, the types of working dogs that are out there? Right. Yeah, I can. Um, and it is a big topic um, going on right now, um, as you've seen in the, the media with the changes to airline rules. Um, but there's therapy dogs emotional support animals and a service animal. So the therapy dogs that everybody's used to seeing in the um, libraries or maybe over at um, assisted living facility, um, a children's hospital, they come in mm-hmm. and the dogs um, are very well trained and they're able to go around the hospital and visit. Um, emotional support animals is just another step of training um, that the dog has for some type of disability that may not 100% um, qualify as a service animal. So they do have a, a letter from a physician. The dog is providing usually emotional support for anxiety, um, and that is about the ta- only task that the dog does. So um, when you get to a service animal, according to the ADA law, um, it reads that the dog must mitigate a um, disability for the handler, a veteran or a civilian. 
Um, and those mitigating that disability would be the mobility part. So um, they have a support and um, seizure alert dogs are going to be a service animal uh, because they're going to, they're trained specifically for that seizure uh, diabetic. And, you know, everybody knows they can see the harness for the senile dogs. So our service animals are just trained to mitigate um, the disability for the handler, where most of the sport animal is just there to provide comfort and support um, throughout different issues. They can't have access to all the places a service dog and a handler can go. Um, okay. There's limited access with an emotional support animal. Like you were saying with the flying, um, you know, that, those rules are changing right now. We're going to have to wait and see uh, what does come down from um, the, the news media releasing uh, new guidelines uh, that take effect, I think, July 10th is what I heard. And we'll wait and see what those new rules are going to be. But a service animal is going to be allowed to accompany their handler in any um, public place that a person can go where emotional support animal may not have that opportunity. Okay. You know, I, I've always wondered a couple of things about these dogs. I mean, they have to go to the bathroom, right, just like everybody else, and that may, yeah. not, that may not come at a particular time, you know, particularly good time for the handler. How yeah. do they get that message across to the handler, particularly somebody who might be in a wheelchair or have mobility issues uh, who may not be able to take them out? How do they, how does that happen? Well, some of the dogs um, train uh, for CNI and uh, wheelchair just so people can get out. Their dogs actually are thought to um, go on command, and they will go um, most of the time on, in a concreted area because the handler cannot access a, a dog park or a grassy area to get through with a wheelchair, mm -hmm. sure. possibly. Or, um, you know, the CNI dog will just go right on the sidewalk. Um, but, you know, we try to train our handlers and let them know that, you know, anytime you get your dog out of a vehicle to go into a store, you stop and you allow them the opportunity. Mm -hmm. um, one of the other ways is that our dogs are never allowed. Our dogs are never allowed to go um, use the break area or the restroom with their vests on. So we use the vest as kind of a key to let them know it's time to go to work. And the dog is never allowed to even in there. And these may send puppies from shelters and, um, some breeders donate a dog from time to time. Um, those dogs will always learn that whenever their vest is on, they are not allowed to go potty. Oh, that's um, interesting. So the handler needs to make sure though, that they relieve their dogs um, prior to. And then, you know, dogs that fly or ride along bus rides and things, um, we do a limited intake of food and water for however long the trip may be. So they may only get a half ration mm -hmm. of food the day before they fly instead of the full one. So, um, and there are a lot of reef areas in uh, the airports now um, around the country. So the dogs have the ability to yeah. still be in the terminal and not get out. And there are public access points to that for handlers and wheelchairs and things. So the airports sure. are making it, um, pretty convenient to be able to do it. Yeah, and I, I don't want to get too far into this, but if, you know, my this is where my mind goes, and my my daughter, the youngest yeah. daughter, accuses me of having the mind of a twelve year old boy. So I guess I have to indulge that sometimes. But I mean, if you got a guy in a wheelchair, or uh, you know, you have a dog who's a seeing eye dog, how does how does it get cleaned up? I mean, if they can't reach necessarily down to the sidewalk or a seeing eye dog, I mean, you know, a blind person could find what the dog has left, but how, how does that happen? They're, they're not, right. you can't train them to clean up after themselves, or maybe you can. 
No, we can't yet. Um, I've seen a few devices on the internet, but I'm not sure how well they work. So I won't <laughs> go into where they work. But, um, you know, I've seen a lot of the handlers and wheelchairs carry the um, scoops with them as the bag is attached to. Um, and then again, if the dog has learned not to go in its harness, um, you know, there's a routine. Dogs love to follow a structure and a routine. So if they know they get up in the morning when, you know, a handler may be sight impaired, they're going to eat. They're going to walk them out to a certain spot at a certain time almost every day, and the dog knows to go. And then if they're out of their vest uh, or in their vest, they know not to. So the handler right. can do it, but eventually, you know, um, he's going to do his best to try to find what the, if the dog made a mess. Um, you know, but sometimes it's just I've seen it'll be up on the, in a sidewalk somewhere. Yeah. Um, and I don't know if it's a service animal or not, but some of the handlers, they do their best to try. They know their dog has stopped and is doing something. Um, so you have to do it, you know, completely sight um, blind. They, if they can't do it, then um, they're just going to move on and hope that somebody else gets it for them. Yeah. I know they try really hard to pick, get it all cleaned up. Oh, I'm sure. Tell us a little bit about some of the experiences that the veterans you've worked with are having with their dogs and, and the impact that it's having on their lives. Yes, so... Um, Canines for Warriors was partnered with Purdue University, and we're in the middle of a couple studies, but some of the ones that came back, um, talking to our veterans, uh, we're seeing that they are recovering. Um, they're in their way to recovery from PTSD. They're no longer isolating themselves. Um, out of a group of warriors that we've graduated over 435 right now, I believe, um, it was a small sampling from Purdue, but 73% of them have returned back to work or school um, due to the use of their service animal. Eighty-two uh, percent have reduced suicidal thoughts wow. um, since having their service animal. Where it was a daily thought, um, those those are going away. Um, they're averaging two to three hours of sleep more per night, which is allowing them to have a healthier lifestyle. But I think um, you know all the facts and figures that are out there. The biggest one is we have 22 veterans a day that are committing suicide. Yeah. Um, and the canine stores, we've had one suicide out of our four, plus 400 graduates. Um, you know, and it's an epidemic that we need to work on. And these dogs are saving their lives. Uh, you, we get stories that I could go into um, lengthy detail, but a handle recall. And, you know, one of them said the dog kept um, nipping at him as he had a weapon in his hand um, and kept nudging him and kept bothering him and actually pulled his underwear down. Um while this young man was um, contemplating suicide in his house, and it was the dog, he said the next day that kept his thought pattern disrupted enough that he decided it wasn't what he wanted to do. Um, wow. So there's you know numbers of stories of these animals doing that for these guys, and that's that bond that you know they create. These dogs know and sense that anxiety, um, and then returning them back to their families. You know, when a husband and wife and the family would go out, they return from overseas and they don't want to go out so it's not a family unit anymore it's just the kids and, and one parent where the other one wants to stay home and you know the heartfelt stories we get even from children that say thank you for giving us our mom or dad back they're going out to school and seeing the plays they're taking them out to dinner um and things of that nature to bring that family unit back together and allow the kids to grow up um just recently one of the the kid in the documentary, his mom homeschooled him because she would not leave the house. 
for seven years, and he's now in regular school, and she's picking him up and going to school then. It took a year or so having the service animal, but he's now, you know, I wouldn't say he wasn't living a productive life before, but he's not homeschooled, and she's able to allow him to get back into school. Um, and she's become more of a mom again than the, than the person that's staying at home. So um, part of it, we say, is getting him back to life with independence and integrity. And I think that's what these dogs do for our veterans is it provides them that enough support and enough work that they can get back out because all their veterans are caregivers. They want to help people and they want to help their families. They just haven't been able to. And through a service animal, um, it, it is happening for them. And that's probably the biggest transformation that I enjoy and love seeing and hearing every day is somebody getting back to life with their family and getting back out. Just one last question here before I let you go. A real basic one. Is it okay for people to just come up and pet a service dog, or should we do what the vest says and not touch them? It, it's, uh, it's a debate because everybody's a dog lover. Um, you know, one of the things I put in my handlers is we teach a command called make a friend. Um, if they choose to say and let somebody say hello to their service animal, it, it needs to be done in a controlled command so that the dog isn't learning that it can go up to anybody to pet. But the person seeking the wants the attention of the dog, they have to think about what what is that dog working for. Um, if it's a diabetic dog or a seizure dog, um, you know, while they're petting the dog, could it possibly be missing a medical sign from a handler that'll put them into a medical problem, you know, right. immediately that could have been avoided. So, you know, what I try to say is um, we all know that everybody loves dogs. They want to say them, but if they have a vest on. It's it's just like working. Um, you know, the dog's working. It should be invisible to people. Hmm. And, okay. and it does make it hard for some of the handlers because there are a lot of people that um, don't take no for an answer when they're asking to pet the dog. Hmm. But hopefully they think about it as what what disability could they be working for? Could I make that, you know, the life of the handler worse by distracting the dog? And right. the answer is yes, it could happen. So the best is to just if it's a well-trained dog and handler going by, just smile and appreciate what the dog's doing for, for the handler. Brett Simon, the founder and president and uh, chief training guy at Canines for Warriors. Again, it's K9sforwarriors.org. You can find out how to donate to the organization, how to support the good work that they're doing, and uh, also learn a little bit more about their programming. Brett, thank you so much. No problem, I appreciate it. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott, and it's time for an Ask Mr. Dad segment. Dear Mr. Dad, you've talked about how futile it is to discipline an infant. That makes sense, but what about toddlers? At one time or another, all parents struggle with discipline, establishing limits, enforcing limits, and getting their kids to speak to them respectfully and do what they're supposed to do. But discipline isn't only about correction. It's about teaching kids to control themselves and care about others so that they can grow up to be productive members of society. I put together a list of nearly two dozen approaches that will enable you to help your kids do just that. Here's the first batch. We'll have the next batch next week. Be firm. Set reasonable limits, explain them, and enforce them. Be consistent. Your child will learn to adapt to inconsistencies between you and your partner. If you allow jumping on the bed but she doesn't, for example, the child will do it when he's with you and won't when he's with your partner. 
However, if you allow jumping one day and prohibit it the next, you'll only confuse your child and undermine your attempts to get him to listen when you ask him to do something. Compromise. Kids can't always tell the difference between big and little issues, so give in on a few small things once in a while, like an extra piece of birthday cake at the end of a long day might have ordered a tantrum. That will give the child a feeling of control and will make it easier for her to go along with the program on the bigger issues, like holding hands when you're crossing the street, for example. Be assertive and specific. Stop throwing your food now is much better than cut that out. Give choices. If you're giving your child a bath and he won't stop pouring water onto the floor outside the tub, you might say something like, would you like to stop pouring water on the floor or would you like to get out of the bathtub and go to bed? If he ignores you, gently but firmly take him out of the tub, silently dry him off, ignoring the tears, and put him to bed. Cut down on the warnings. If your child knows the rules, at this age all you have to do is ask, impose the promised consequences immediately. If you make a habit of giving six preliminary warnings and three last warnings before doing anything, your child will learn to start responding only after the eighth or ninth time you ask. Link consequences directly to the problem behavior, and don't forget to explain clearly and simply what you're doing and why. I'm taking away your hammer because you hit me with it, or I asked you not to take that egg out of the fridge and you didn't listen to me. Now you'll have to help me clean it up. No banking. If you're imposing punishments or consequences, do it immediately. You can't punish a child at the end of the day for something or a bunch of somethings that she did earlier. She's not capable of associating the undesirable action and its consequence. Keep it short. Once the punishment is over, and whatever it is shouldn't last any more than a minute per year of age, get back to your life. There's no need to review, summarize, or make sure your child got the point. Stay calm. Screaming, ranting, or raving can easily cross the line into verbal abuse that can do long-term damage to your child's self-esteem. Tune in next week when we continue this list of discipline ideas that really work. If you've got a comment or a question for us here at Positive Parenting, please send us a line through our website, mrdad.com. We'll be back next week with another show for you. Until then, I'm Armin Brott. But don't go yet, because as you know, there's a lot more of this Positive Parenting show coming right up. Did you know 26 million Americans have kidney disease and most don't know it? Did you know understanding your risk of kidney disease may be the first step in treating it? Visit the National Kidney Foundation at kidney.org. Now you know. Hey there, welcome to the second part of today's Positive Parenting Show. I'm Armin Brott, the founder of MrDad.com. More than 100 million American adults suffer from acid reflux, which drives a $15 billion annual industry in anti-reflux drugs. But can children get acid reflux too? Surprisingly, the answer is yes. Symptoms in children can include poor sleeping, noisy breathing, allergies, ear infections, asthma, croup, throat infections, and a chronic cold. Often presenting as silent respiratory reflux, which is not easily detected by pediatricians, the disease can go untreated for an entire childhood, which can lead to rounds of ineffective medications, emergency room visits, and even unnecessary surgeries. 
In this part of today's show, we're going to be talking with an expert in childhood acid reflux who calls the condition the great masquerader of our time. She's going to tell us about what acid reflux is, what the symptoms are, what the cure is, as well as dietary recommendations that even the pickiest of eaters will be able to make it through. And that's important because healthy eating can beat reflux and cure children's ear, nose, throat, and respiratory afflictions at various stages of development. We'll start talking about acid reflux and everything associated with it when Positive Parenting continues right after this. Check it out. It's the Terminator. Hey, when'd you get back, huh? Did you have to shoot anyone? Why are you so distant? Are you not happy to see me? So what's the deal? You gonna get a job now or what? Why are you being so jumpy? Put all that stuff behind you, okay? No one knows what it's like to come back from Iraq or Afghanistan unless they were there. Join other veterans at communityofveterans.org because we know where you're coming from. Brought to you by Iraq and Afghanistan Veterans of America and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott, and my guest for this part of today's show is Jamie Kaufman, who's one of three authors of the book called Acid Reflux in Children, How Healthy Eating Can Fix Your Child's Asthma, Allergies, Obesity, Nasal Congestion, Cough, and Croup. That's a lot of stuff. Jamie, welcome. Thanks for being on the show. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Tell us a little bit about, I think in in more detail, what acid reflux is, because I think think that I knew what it is, or I thought I knew what it was until I started reading the book and then I realized I didn't. Well, I think that's that's a national problem. Um, Not only do people not know, uh, physicians don't know. Um, You may not be aware of it, but the specialties are only about two generations old. So in 1970, there were surgeons and internists and maybe a few specialists, but these specialties have evolved. And so the gastroenterologists discovered these instruments looking inside of people doing endoscopy in 1975. And then what I call the heartburn model um, became uh, the way, the law of the land, if you will. So acid reflux means the backflow. Reflux means backflow of acid uh, and other enzymes and other stuff, digested food, into the esophagus. That was called GERD. And the gastroenterologist took possession of reflux. Reflux is heartburn. Uh, Heartburn is reflux. It's esophageal, and we own it. And they thump on their chest and declare (laughs) that it was there. The problem is it turned out not to be the case. I started out doing laryngology. I was trained in ENT. But I very quickly decided to specialize in problems of the voice, and I kept seeing a pattern of inflammation and of complications that weren't being recognized. So we began looking for acid reflux in the throat. So the punchline is that everybody knows about heartburn and indigestion, but that represents half of people, maybe less than half of people who have reflux, meaning most people have silent reflux. They don't know it's reflux because they don't have heartburn and indigestion. And this is true both of, of adults and children. For adults, half have a silent reflux. But for kids, 
They all have silent reflux. You'll never hear a kid complain of heartburn or indigestion. Hmm. So the symptoms, though, are caused by this backup or backflow of stuff from the stomach. Well, what happens when you have a reflux or backflow is the tissues become sick, inflamed. Um, the acid and the enzymes that are in the stomach are very aggressive ones. And so we figured out quickly that uh, hoarseness, it was the most common cause of hoarseness. It was the most common cause of sinus uh, symptoms, uh, allergy-like symptoms, that more uh, people with asthma have reflux than actually have asthma. Hmm. And for kids, the cold that never goes away, recurrent croup, chronic throat clearing, raspy voice, um, poor sleep, um, intermittently chronic sore throat, and then medications and surgeries for those things that don't seem to help. You know, you talk about in the book something that I, that I think I, I'm curious about whether you get a lot of pushback from it because it's, it's, uh, it's rather blunt. I'm just going to read it, that the contemporary American diet is responsible for the obesity, diabetes, allergy, asthma, and reflux epidemics. They are all one and the same epidemic. That's really, I mean, it's a fascinating idea. It, it, do you have... It, it's not an idea, it's the truth. When I grew okay. up, I'm old. Um, nobody, <laughs> there were no fat people. We had one, one guy that was obese. Um, nobody had asthma. Uh, we didn't have uh, 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 diabetes. Um, we didn't have sleep apnea. We didn't have reflux. Um, mother put dinner on the table at 6 o'clock. Everything came locally. Um, when I was in high school, I went to my first fast food place. Um, in 1965, soda machines started to be installed in school dormitories and everywhere else. Yeah. So in reality, um, and this is going to sound like a conspiracy theory, but the, the government, uh, the food industry, and big pharma – have all basically allowed us to develop a diet which is intrinsically unhealthy and causes all of these diseases, by the way, all of which are reversible. Well, But everybody wants to eat that delicious-looking, you know, uh, uh, double cheeseburger with all the bacon on it with fries and a Coke. So how do you tell, just to go to something that's a little bit more innocuous, like asthma, how can you tell... If you're a parent and your child is having breathing issues, particularly after they run or they do some sort of athletic thing, how can you tell if it's reflux or actual asthma, especially if when you've gone to the doctor, you come back with a prescription for albuterol? Well, first of all, albuterol will help both real asthma and reflux-caused asthma okay. and reflux itself. Uh, some, but I must tell you, there is a one um, ironclad piece of information that listeners should know. Um, asthma occurs when there is constriction of the bronchial tubes inside the lung. And so with true asthma, there's trouble getting the air out of the lung during the expiratory phase and not during inhalation. If your child has noisy breathing on inhalation, it's reflux. There are a set of switches or receptors to close the vocal cords. And so uh, this is indeed a response to acid. And so if your child has trouble breathing in instead of out, it's reflux, not asthma. 
Wow, that's fascinating. Okay. By the way, I just to tell you, I, 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 I fixed a patient, <clears throat> uh, two patients. I had a woman who worked for me, it's very important, uh, who was a new woman who worked for me and her child. She, she was coming in late a couple of times during the first couple of months because her child had an asthma attack and she was in the uh, emergency room and coming in the morning late. And I, and I asked her, and her child had more trouble breathing in or out. And um, I asked her about her habit. And this child had ice cream and chocolate milk before bed every night. And I said, just stop the bedtime snacks. Give this child dinner and then um, uh, the, whatever dessert there is. And then do whatever, uh, homework, uh, bath, television, and have your child go to bed with no bedtime snack. And by the way, the asthma went away with no additional treatment. Wow. The, the quote, asthma, end quote. So are there other interesting pieces of, of information that we need to know about how to recognize the difference between reflux and other symptoms or other other conditions that, that might share symptoms? Well, uh, the three, in my opinion, in my experience, the three biggest misdiagnoses in America for both adults and children are allergies, of sinus disease, and, and asthma. So we've, we've just talked about asthma. Right. Um, I estimate we spend $200 billion a year to get reflux wrong a year. That's pretty uh, uh, amazing. Well, let's talk about allergies for a minute. Most people who have true allergies will come in contact with something. For example, I have ragweed. And so uh, when I go walking in the fall, once I get down by the river, um, my, my nose runs like crazy. I sneeze 30 times. My eyes start to itch. And I go through an entire thing of uh, handheld Kleenex before I, I get back to the house. So that typically having uh, copious watery, runny nose is typical. Um, uh, but if your child is always congested, always seems to have a cold, always is, has mucus, particularly if it's thick mucus, and, uh, and it's associated with other symptoms. By the way, reflux is usually many symptoms, chronic throat clearing, chronic cough, um, uh, 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 any, 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 any symptoms that, that are associated with reflux, which are a whole host, and um, is not getting better, uh, then, uh, then allergy may not be the diagnosis. Uh, one other thing to say about that is, you know, reflux is common and allergies are common. So some people have both. And yeah. fixing the reflux seems to make a big difference. Talking with Jamie Kaufman, who's one of the co-authors with Julie Way and Karen Zur of Acid Reflux in Children, How Healthy Eating Can Fix Your Child's Asthma, Allergies, Obesity, Nasal Congestion, Cough, and Croup. And we are going to be taking a short break here. When we come back, I want to keep talking to Jamie about some more of the differences between acid reflux and other conditions and want to get into some of the diet part, which is a, one of the important components of this particular book. I'm Armin Brat, and you are listening to Positive Parenting. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Broad. If you're just joining us, talking with Jamie Kaufman, who's one of the co-authors of Acid Reflux in Children, 
And you mentioned that there were three things. So there was allergies, there was asthma, and then you said sinus issues. And I'm, I'm thinking, you know, these are all three things that I have and wondering what, of what, you know, of course, whether you can diagnose me over the phone. But uh, I can. No, I can't. <laughs> you sound, your vocal cords sound swollen. You, you sound really? like you have reflux, yeah. Oh, um, they're, they're supposed to be to sounding me, sexy. Uh, <laughs> well, they do sound sexy, but they sound like swollen vocal cords. Okay. That's but possible. I will say this. Um, I have a paralyzed vocal cord, so that my voice doesn't sound great either. <laughs> well, I mean, your voice is perfectly normal as far as the public is concerned, but I think that I hear swollen vocal cords. It's possible, yeah. I mean, I, I always seem to be sniffling and, and have uh, some kind of sinus thing going on. I don't know, a doctor friend of mine put told me I should get off of gluten, dairy, and sugar. And I got to say, when I, when I am on that diet, I feel so much better. Well, that's interesting. Uh, like, yeah, so I, I don't, uh, I, I don't know if that necessarily affects my voice that much. Nobody said anything about it, but well, uh, but the biggest question is what time do you eat dinner at night? A lot of Americans they they have almost nothing for breakfast, a sandwich for lunch, and then their big refueling meal is at night. And then you know it's not that early. They get home at six and they go shopping and they go to the gym. And they have childcare responsibilities. And then they eat at 8 o'clock, and then they go lie on the sofa, and they watch the news, and they get up and they have some ice cream, and they all reflux all night while they sleep. And then they get up in the morning, and the voice is raspy, and they're clearing their throat, and they have all these symptoms. Oh, no, I, uh, my, my daughter was just razzing me about the fact that I seem to graze all day. Um, Grazing all day is good. Grazing oh. too late is not good. <laughs> okay, well, yeah, sometimes sometimes it gets it gets to be too late, yeah. But let, let's talk about the diet part of this because it, that's the, one of the big components of the book is you're talking about how diet can, can help to overcome these things. Do, do you think that you need to get a diagnosis first or can you just skip all that and move to the correct diet part of things that will, that will well, help to— all, First of all, this, is, this book is the fourth of four books that I've written for the general public in a reflux series. And um, and so if you look in any of the books, it, for the children, there are two quizzes that parents can take, and they'll give a likelihood whether the diagnosis is reflux. There's also a quiz in, in the Acid Reflux in Children book that tells whether the diet is a bad reflux diet. But if you ask me um, what I think are the most important, you know, sort of do's and don'ts when it comes to reflux, uh, the first is going to come to you as a surprise, uh, no soft drinks or really minimizing soft drinks or using soft drinks as a treat. Um, that includes uh, fruit juices. Um, get them out of the house. Um, the first book's called Dropping Acid. If someone wants to find me, if you just Google Dropping Acid, you'll find me. <laughs> and even though it was written a decade ago, it's the number one reflux book in the country. And what what happened with this was we started measuring the acidity of foods and beverages, and everything in a bottle was profoundly acidic. And we couldn't figure it out. We couldn't figure it out. And finally, as I was writing the manuscript, I came across uh, 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 something that happened in 1973. In 1973, following an outbreak of food poisoning, the Food and Drug Administration mandated that everything in a bottle or a can crossing state lines have some acidity in it 
presumably to kill bacteria. The FDA never imagined, however, that all of these soft drinks, particularly carbonated drinks, would go too far. So you should know that everything in a bottle or can, except for still water, includes salsa, everything has the acidity of stomach acid. And so for that reason, um, the more you drink, the worse the reflux is. And so you get up in the morning and you have juice, and then you go to the gym and you have an energy drink, and then you have you know, uh, uh, another one for lunch, and then you get, during the afternoon you want something with some caffeine and you have another one. And so, uh, so basically, um, in my family, we drink water. Um, when I have guests over, I put a, a ice in all the glasses and a pitcher of water on the table. I have coffee in the morning. I drink some iced tea, um, not, not bottled. I make it myself. And I drink water. And uh, that's what we recommend. And there's one other thing about water. There's also something called alkaline water. And alkaline water is the opposite of acid. And we knew about this because patients said, you know, when I started drinking this particular water, which is an alkaline water, my reflux went away. Hmm. You can't overdose on alkaline water. And so anything that has a pH greater than 8, so if it says 8 or 8.8 or 9 or 9.5, those waters are actually good for you. They're good for your reflux. They're good for your bones. They're good for your prostate. And there's even evidence uh, in animal models that it prevents or slows uh, tumor growth rates. So Where do you get this water? Well, nowadays, most um, I've just put up a blog. If you go to the Voice Institute of New York, I've listed a blog of all the alkaline waters. You could print that page and take it to your store and see if they have it. But, uh, you know, the more specialized grocery stores have whole aisles of it whereas your average grocery store may have um, a one or two. But uh, you, you need to identify it. But the thing that makes it easy is if it's in alkaline water, um, the manufacturer will identify it as such and put the pH, which is the acid scale, on the bottle. Yeah, because I was thinking about that. I'm just thinking of the, the ingredient panels on all the drinks that you mentioned, the juices and the soft drink. I don't remember seeing anything in there about... Alka, uh, about acidity or pH well, guess or what? anything. Yeah, I I I I railed with the with the uh, FDA asking them to please put the pH on the, the labels of everything in a bottle or a can. And the letter I got from the FDA after supplying them with a tremendous amount of information was the weight of evidence is there's no scientific weight of evidence that acid is bad for people, and so they refused. Hmm. That must have been frustrating. Because the manufacturers would be very upset to see that it was pH 2.9 on their thing because people would pretty pretty soon figure out it's not so healthy. <laughs> well, I mean, is it something that's being added? Or is it yeah. something that's a natural byproduct of no, the canning? And, and often they lie. For example, I had a woman who was a star in Motown. And her reflux was terrible, and we got her reflux under control. And she came in one day all proud that she was drinking um, a coconut uh, a milk. And I looked at the label, and it said, all natural, all organic. And it said, coconut milk and vitamin C. And I said, well, let's, 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 let's check the pH. And the pH was 3.3. Vitamin C is ascorbic acid. And so ascorbic acid, citric acid, and phosphoric acid are added. And if you look at the ingredients, you'll see 
almost everything that's been acidified. And uh, all, all, sometimes they disguise the acids, like by just saying vitamin C. Yeah. But it's the most common one used. All right. So it sounds like eating, uh, drinking water is going to be one of the best things you can do, getting rid of all the drinks and, and the soft drinks and things. But is, we, we only have got a couple minutes left or a minute and a half left. Uh, talk about the just general diet ideas that, that people should start incorporating into, into their life. Well, first of all, the food industry knows that um, genetically we like fat and sugar and salt. And so oh, yeah. that's what's in our food. So we have problems with everyone's a sugar addict, particularly your children. And it's the sugar that draws them in um, like a Trojan horse. But it's the fat that makes them obese. The fat helps make them reflux. Fat actually relaxes the lower valve. Um, so look at, look, people need to learn how to read labels. But anyway, if I were to sort of give the top things to recommend, um, no bedtime snacks. It's the highest risk thing you can do. Uh, minimize fast food. Minimize processed food. You've got to read some labels. Lean, clean, green, and alkaline. <laughs> if it has uh, 15 unpronounceables on the label, it is not healthy. Um, and processed meats, by the way, which you send your kids to lunch to, to school with for their lunch. Um, the World Health Organization has classified processed meats as a class one carcinogen in the same category as cigarette smoking and uh, plutonium. So what do wow. you do? Uh, feed your child two hours before bed. Uh, don't uh, use uh, so much high fat uh, food. Don't send your uh, uh, children to school with uh, with with, with uh, chips, uh, let them take a banana or fruit. Uh, five servings of vegetables and fruits a day for both adults and children are considered optimal. Take your child to the grocery store and let him or her pick out the fruits and vegetables that are, that are appealing. And also, cook at home some, even if it's mostly on the weekend, and always make extra. And if you do that, then you'll find out that you've got more healthy food around and more of your meals are healthy. Yep. Jamie Coffins, the co-author of Acid Reflux in Children, How Healthy Eating Can Fix Your Child's Asthma, Allergies, Obesity, Nasal Congestion, Cough, and Croup. Jamie, thanks very much for joining us. It's been my pleasure. Before we go, a special thanks to the folks at Navy Federal Credit Union for supporting today's show. They've been proudly serving the armed forces, veterans, and their families for over 80 years. Federally insured by NCUA. Thanks for listening to Positive Parenting. You can get more information on today's show and what we're working on in the weeks ahead at MrDad.com. While you're there, visit the MrDad.com gift shop with everything you need to help you become the dad or mom you want to be. Positive Parenting is a production of the MrDad.com radio network. Now, go be a great parent.